Good morning, IDC. It's good to be with you. Uh, everybody who prayed that we would survive our beach trip that I shared about last time, I appreciate your prayers. We made it back. It's always a joy to sit together under the scriptures, to be shaped and transformed by them. And as we do that this morning, we recognize that this is a heavy text. It's not an easy one. It's not a light one. But nonetheless, I think there's a good reason for us to be excited, excited for God to shape his people by his word. And so let's go to him in prayer and prepare for that. Lord, we're so grateful for your word, grateful that you have spoken, and grateful that today you are at work through your word, shaping your people, forming a people. So Lord, this morning, as we consider this text and what it looks like for us to believe it, and live it. Pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes. That we might behold the wonders of Christ and the riches of your mercy. Shape us, Lord. Show us sin that must be repented of. Show us deeper ways of trusting you, of cherishing you, of tasting and seeing that you are good. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know what your dishwasher is like, uh, but I will tell you a little bit about mine. Uh, it's getting long in the tooth. It came with the house, uh, but it still mostly does what it needs to do, so we've, we've kept it. Uh, but every once in a while, I run into a little problem with the dishwasher. Uh, after the cycle's complete, I'm looking for a coffee mug for a cup of hot coffee, and everything in there looks clean, looks pristine. But I pull out a coffee mug, and even though the outside of it is sparkling, on the inside, there's a little bit of food. Who knows what it is, but it got trapped in there during the wash cycle. And if you use the heated dry setting, it is not just dirty, it is baked into the ceramic. There's no way to get it out. You just got to let it soak for a while. And it's pretty disappointing, right? Because the coffee's got to wait or it's going to go in something else. Um, but the reason why that kind of thing is so disappointing to us is because we all know the experience of something that appears one way, that gives the impression of being one way, and then facing the reality that it's not, it's not what it seems to be, right? We've all experienced that disappointment. In fact, there is a Latin phrase from Cicero, esse quam videri. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but I'm Latino, not an expert in Latin. Uh, esse quam videri means to be rather than to seem. And your little bit of North Carolina uh, trivia today is that that is actually our state's motto, to be rather than to seem. We can recognize what's special about that, right? What's unique about that. We all feel that. When something appears one way, but it really isn't, it just hits us wrong. It unsettles us. It repulses us in many ways. Perhaps you had that classmate who always wanted to appear very smart, and so they would raise their hands and start speaking and use uh, multi-syllable words from the dictionary, and by the end of it, you were just embarrassed for them, Right? There's all kinds of examples like that. Not all of them are so silly and so benign. We could spend all day talking about celebrities and politicians and social media influencers and those who have made it a point of their lives to market an image that has nothing to do with reality. In fact, we could go further than that and weep and mourn together at all the Christian leaders that we at one time or another looked up to celebrated, respected, 
but today find themselves disgraced because what they said and what they did didn't quite line up. You might be thinking, hey, it's not just famous people. I know some people in real life that this sermon could apply to. If they're sitting next to you, just go ahead and give them the elbow nudge so they know that you think this sermon is for them. It's actually not hard for us to observe hypocrisy in others. We're very good at it. What's a little bit harder is observing hypocrisy in ourselves. And so it would be easy for us to come to this text this morning and say, well, you know, the Pharisees and the lawyers, they're a category of person that is out there, and we're not in that category. But I don't think this scripture was given to us just so that we could hold up a mirror to somebody else and measure them by it. It's for us, too. The mirror is for us. And I suspect that there is sin that we should repent of. You might be regretting the elbow nudge now if you did it. It's okay. We're all there together. In today's passage, Jesus is wearing out his welcome at dinner. He doesn't pull his punches when he confronts the religious elite. They're putting on a really good show, but it's just a show, and he's not playing along. He exposes the traps of their facade. For all of their expressions of faithfulness and piety, it really is just a show. What they're propping up instead is a hypocritical religion, and that hypocritical religion is one that obstructs the path to salvation. It's one that obsesses over the external, and ultimately it's one that opposes God's word, even as it pretends to uphold it. Jesus is rebuking their religious because that kind of religious, that kind of hypocritical religion is ultimately one that God rejects. He does not receive it. So let's join Jesus at dinner and see what he's got to say about the traps of hypocritical religion. So the first trap is that hypocritical religion obsesses over the external. Looking at verse 37, there's been an invitation to dinner to hear Jesus speak a little bit more on what he's been teaching. The Pharisees, they're the ones who see themselves as the faithful ones. They are concerned with keeping God's law, with remaining pure. They care about faithfulness to such a degree that they'd been built fences around fences. It's best not to come right up on the edge of what's permissible. Best not to teeter on the edge of a cliff. Let's build a fence back here so we're all safe from impurity. That actually doesn't sound like such a bad idea. In fact, we do things like that all the time. And coming from a transformed heart, it can be, it can be good for us to be cautious, right? Someone committed to sexual holiness might keep their computer somewhere public. An engaged couple might choose to never be alone in a private space. An office manager might choose not to ever be solely responsible for finances, just to avoid the temptation even. These can be good things coming from a good place. But often, good intentions can go astray. You ever found yourself judging someone who didn't observe your extra-biblical rules? Have you ever looked at them as less faithful or less committed than you? It's okay. You can admit it. You already did the elbow nudge, so we know. We know. We all do this, right? We all do this. And so the Pharisees, they had a rule, ceremonial hand washing before dinner. It wasn't just about getting physically clean, right, getting the germs off. It was about purity. All day long, they've been interacting with a sinful world, a contaminated world, and now when we sit down to eat, before we put food into our mouths with those hands, let's go ahead and rinse off the impurity so that we don't make ourselves unclean by taking something in. 
You might be a germaphobe, and that's what's alarming to you about that. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus, as a religious teacher, is exactly the kind of person you would expect to follow that rule. Again, for the Pharisees, the world out there is what's contaminated. But Jesus doesn't follow with him. In fact, this isn't the only time that the Pharisees have been scandalized by a lack of hand washing. In Matthew 15, they confront Jesus because the disciples aren't washing their hands. And in that passage, Jesus corrects them. He tells them, it's not what you put in that defiles the body, rather what comes out. What flows out of the heart is really what defiles them. In this passage, he does something similar. If it's the world out there that will defile us, then what we need is separation. We need barriers between us and that fallen world. And so for the Pharisees, the outside is what's supremely important. The outside is how we create those barriers. The outside is how we know that we're pure. The outside matters a great deal. But Jesus drops a bomb on that idea. I'm not sure if you've ever watched any zombie movies. If you haven't, I'm not advocating that you go watch one now. Um, but if you have, this will sound very familiar to you, right? The plot of many a zombie movie is there are zombies out there. They're trying to eat us, eat our brains, whatever the specific thing might be. It's very plausible. Uh, and there are non-zombie people, right? And they are on the run from the zombies. They've got to get away from them. At some point, after many minor characters have met their demise, they find a semi-safe-looking building, an abandoned school, an abandoned hospital, and they barricade themselves. Finally, we found some safety, right? The zombies out there can be locked out and kept out, and we can be safe in here. Uh, I hate to spoil it for you if you haven't seen a zombie movie, but maybe you won't after this. They're not as safe as they think they are. Either there's a zombie locked in there with them or somebody's been bitten and infected and soon they will be a zombie. They couldn't keep the threat outside. They couldn't keep themselves from contamination. I may have just ruined a whole genre of movie for you, but <laughs> I know, I know. Bad things happen. And the shock of discovering that the threat isn't just out there, but it's in here with us, it's kind of like the shock that the Pharisees had when Jesus dropped this bomb on them. They're convinced that the threat out there can be contained. And Jesus says, actually, the problem is right here. It's not just out there, it's in here. No amount of hand washing is going to rinse out the greed in their hearts. They've cleaned the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside it's filthy. You can't purell your heart. And God isn't fooled by a clean appearance on the outside. In fact, he knows their hearts because he's made the outside and the inside. And so there's no hiding it from God. Jesus is God and he sees right through the veneer of their outward religion. Verse 41 maybe strikes us as a little bit difficult. Why does he say to give his alms what is within and why would that make everything clean? Well, there's a few things going on here, right? Jesus has been able to peer through their facade, through the veneer, and he sees greed and wickedness. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we find the Pharisees accused of uh, robbing widows' homes, devouring widows' homes, right? They've got financial means, and they've acquired it through unrighteous avenues. And so what Jesus is telling, to do, telling them to do is much like what Zacchaeus did in response to Jesus. Take what you have been hoarding for yourself and give it away. The greed in your heart is the corrupting agent, so expel it. In Matthew 23, 26, we get a sense of this. Uh, he responds to the Pharisees, clean the inside first 
so the outside will also be clean. The contamination they should be worried about isn't out there. It's inside of them, eating them alive. So some scholars suggest that because the Aramaic word for cleanse is similar to give charity, what Jesus is doing here is a play on words, and Matthew and Luke are just highlighting different sides of that. But in both Gospels, it's clear Jesus is emphasizing that to be clean, it's what is within that has to be addressed first. And then the outside will be made clean. It's a result of inward transformation to be transformed on the outside. And this is why it doesn't just work for us to preach a moral salvation to people. They can stop being sexually immoral, but apart from the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, what good is that to them? You can't be saved by morality. You can't be saved by outward expressions. We have to address the heart. You can't put the cart before the horse. And one more thing to note here, Jesus doesn't seem to be as worried as, worried as some of us are that to pursue justice on a social, societal level is somehow a compromise of the gospel. He's not preaching a social gospel, that's for sure. But for Jesus, the obvious outworking of a heart that's been transformed by God includes giving alms, caring for the poor, the vulnerable, the overlooked, the hurting. And he ties that pursuit of justice to being clean. I didn't say it. Jesus did. But if you do have a complaint, Shana at E.C. Raleigh is where that goes. <laughs> All right, let's get to the woes. There's six of them in this passage, and woe is not a word we use much these days. So as you hear woe, you should be hearing an expression of deep sorrow and grief. There's some judgment implied, no doubt. But there's a weightiness to it. It's pained. In the woes, Jesus is exposing the deep, deep tragedy of religious hypocrisy. So first woe, verse 42, neglecting justice and love. There's taking the law seriously, and then there's the Pharisees. Just a little bit too much, right? So there's no Old Testament command to tithe on the herbs. And in fact, the Mishnah said the herbs were exempt from the tithe. This is a little bit like if you're walking down the sidewalk and you find a really shiny penny and you grab it, you take it home, you shave 10% of it off, and you come drop it in the offering box. We can appreciate the sentiment of what you're doing, but it also feels like you might have missed the point a little bit, right? A little bit too much. Well, that's the level of concern that the Pharisees have with observance of the law. It's attention to detail on steroids. They're so into the weeds, that's a pun, that they're completely overlooking what really matters. Have you ever had a married couple try to tell you a story? Not something my wife and I have ever done, but sometimes they get a little lost in the details as they're trying to get to the point. It's like, hey, did we ever tell you that story about last Christmas? No, will you tell it to me? Yeah, it was about 9 a.m. No, it wasn't. It was definitely after lunchtime. <laughs> it couldn't be after lunchtime because Uncle Lou was there. Well, why were we having tacos then? Well, they were breakfast tacos. And on and on it goes. <laughs> and you're just waiting for the point of the story. Can you please just tell me the story? Right? The Pharisees similarly have lost the plot. They've reduced God to some acrimonious accountant who's going to exact the shavings of an herb from them. And yet the really important things, the love of God, justice for neighbor, they're sitting on the shelf untouched. They've got a PhD in the irrelevant, but they're unlearned in the essentials. And one of the things that's surprising is that Jesus doesn't even tell them to stop with the whole herb thing. They actually, they were free to pursue that level of detail. 
but not at the expense of what was essential. What's the point of measuring out a tithe to God when there's no love for him, when there's no love for your neighbor? So where are we measuring the tithe on an herb but neglecting God's greatest commands? I fear many of us get derailed in exactly the same way. We act as if God is just waiting to say, gotcha. And so we spend our lives focusing on this or that test of faithfulness. Meanwhile, our love is cold. Our faith, dead, dry. Our religion, far from joyful freedom that comes from belonging to the Creator, it's just lifeless. Our faith becomes a spreadsheet when it should be a song. So where are we obsessing over the minutiae while justice is neglected? It wouldn't be hard for us to find examples in our world of injustice. You can open the door and find it quickly. But Jesus is telling us plainly that it's not enough that we concern ourselves only with religious concerns like a tithe. The commands that drive all the others, the love of God, the love of neighbor, those are important. They should drive the rest. We've got questions like the tithe that might seem unfamiliar to us, right? But we've got important questions about navigating life in a sinful and broken world that we need answers to. What does faithfulness look like? How do we engage a hostile culture? How do we navigate the minefield of politics? How do we love those who are different from us or who disagree without compromising on the gospel? What's permissible for a Christian and what's not? Whatever our version of tithing on the herbs is, we need to hear Jesus telling us that it only even remotely makes sense in the context of love for God and love for neighbor. They're real-life questions. They need answers. But as we seek the answers to these questions and as we become persuaded of a particular vision of faithfulness, let's not neglect what matters. Love for God and love for neighbor driving those. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point of getting it so right? if we miss what really matters. Another nasty example of hypocritical religion is public acclaim. Verse 43, the Pharisees love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. They want recognition. They want admiration. They want awards and respect. They want to be noticed. And Jesus highlights what's really wrong with that, right? Because it's not wrong to be recognized at the supermarket. It's not wrong to receive an honor for a job well done but it is wrong to love the admiration of man, to be driven by it. It's their love that's the problem. Why do we do what we do? Is it to earn the praise of man, to garner respect and admiration? Do we want to impress? What if what Jesus is offering is so much greater than that? A life of freedom, freedom from the whims of public opinion, a life of simple but deep delight in Jesus, of feeling the smile and the embrace of the Father. It's not just celebrity pastors who have trouble chasing after applause. It could be as simple as sitting in growth group and not really revealing what's going on, being driven by giving a certain impression, wanting to be respectable. It could be our sanitized prayer requests. It could be our desire to have it all together and so we minimize anything that doesn't fit that narrative. When was the last time we actually revealed the struggles of our heart? The real ones, not the safe ones. When's the last time we spoke about our struggle with sin or exposed our insecurity, limitation? May it not be true of us that we have loved the admiration of man more than sincerity before God. 
The second trap of hypocritical religion is that it obstructs the path to salvation. So our third woe, unmarked graves. Unmarked graves are a problem. Why? Because you can just accidentally walk on top of one and be unclean. To come in contact with a corpse or a grave would make you unclean. And so sometimes, as Matthew's gospel highlights, the tombs would be whitewashed, right? So they would become more obvious and you could avoid them. But an unmarked grave is a grave you can't avoid. You can't notice it and go the other way. And what's truly shocking is that the unmarked graves are the people who are supposed to be leading us to God. What a tragedy. Woe to the Pharisees because they're leading people away from God rather than to God. The religion that they peddle isn't leading anyone to salvation. It's corrupting them. They are teaching the people hypocrisy, and that is a death sentence. Like carbon monoxide slowly filling a room. It goes unnoticed, but it is deadly. So as you can imagine, Jesus has offended some people. Dinner is not going so well. There's some hurt feelings, but the lawyers, as lawyers might do, are looking for a way to carve themselves out. Jesus doesn't cooperate. Fourth woe, heavy burdens and lazy fingers. So who are the lawyers? They're the experts in the law. They're not the same as the Pharisees. Those, there's some overlap. Not all Pharisees are lawyers. Not all lawyers are Pharisees, but there's some definite overlap there. And the lawyers are looking for an exemption. Jesus, can you carve us out from what you just said about the Pharisees? Because you're offending us too. Jesus doesn't cooperate. He pronounces woes on them as well. And theirs starts with the heavy burdens they lay on the people. They are piling weight upon weight upon weight on the backs of the people. God's law intended to reveal sin and drive people toward the Savior, the one who can forgive, instead is corrupted, it's distorted. It becomes a burden that crushes. It doesn't drive people toward God. It paralyzes them. The God who saves sinners, who makes a people where there wasn't one, is turned and distorted into a distant and angry God who demands perfection as a prerequisite. Many of us have had experiences with this kind of religion. No jeans, no makeup, no music, no dancing, no movies, no fun. These are on-the-nose examples. But there are far more insidious varieties as well. Anytime we encounter a Christianity where our merits and our efforts win us something before God, earn us a standing, we've encountered a works-based religion, a religion that won't save us, but will lead us to death, a religion that highlights the efforts of man. And so we would be wise to consider at times we have gone astray here. So thinking about this, the lawyers are not just placing these heavy burdens on the people, Part of what's wrong with what they're doing is that they also don't lift a finger to help them. So what does that mean? Well, one thing it could mean is that they have found a way to carve themselves out of the requirements. There's a hypocrisy there, right? That sounds like something a lawyer would do. They've found a loophole. Another thing it might mean is that the burdens that they are laying on people as they claim to teach them the ways to follow God's law are so heavy that they're actually unlivable. And the lawyers might not have any idea because they live a life detached from real experience. They don't know what life is like for a non-lawyer. 
So we'd be wise to consider that the particular extra-biblical rules that we have created for ourselves, however helpful they might actually be for us, may not apply to someone else in a different context. It might be unlivable in someone else's circumstance. So we would do well to take the good but reject the fact that it's absolute for all. In any case, these burdens that they're placing, they're rooted in hypocrisy and the lack of love for God and for neighbor. So I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to hit the next woe out of order. Don't tell anybody. But we're going to jump to verse 52, the fifth woe blocking the door. Woe to you, lawyers, you have taken away the key of knowledge. Hypocritical religion locks the door and throws away the key. It's not enough that those who follow this kind of religion keep themselves from salvation. They block the access for others. They stand in the doorway and prevent others from entering in. They're corrupting the hearts of the people as they give the impression of leading them toward God. They offer a religion of human effort and accomplishment. But that's no comfort and that's no benefit. As a result, those who would seek God instead find themselves led astray by those who should be guiding them. I can't tell you how heavily that warning weighs on me and your other pastors. We tremble at the thought that even accidentally we might be an obstacle to God's people in finding him. But it's not just for pastors. You might not be a pastor. Maybe you aspire to be one one day, or maybe you don't. Maybe you're just a growth group leader. Maybe you're a seminary student. You might be thinking, well, I don't actually have any formal Christian leadership or responsibility, and so this isn't for me. Well, are you a Christian? Do you call yourself by Christ's name? If so, you've been called to lead people to Jesus and to walk side by side with your brothers and sisters in Christ-likeness. And so this warning is for you as well. The text is for all of us. Be careful how you evangelize. Be careful how you disciple. Do it in such a way that the door is not blocked. Do it in such a way that extra biblical burdens aren't crushing his people. Don't convert anyone to your cultural preference or your political ideology or whatever it might be. Show them Jesus. Right? Final trap of hypocritical religion. It opposes God's word while giving the impression of honoring it. Woe number six, the blood of the prophets. What is going on here? Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you might be familiar with the idea of God sending his prophets to his people to confront them about their sin. Spoiler alert, it does not go well. The people rarely receive that well. So the prophets, they're no strangers to being persecuted and even killed. And the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to, they're the descendants biologically of these killers. They're putting on a show today of honoring the prophets. They are building their tombs. These are monuments to the prophets. Matthew's account tells us that they even claim, if we had lived back then, we would not have killed the prophets. Jesus doesn't buy it. They see the tombs as evidence that they're not like their fathers. But Jesus reinterprets that. Jesus says, actually, the tombs are evidence that you're just like them. They don't separate you from the deeds of your fathers. You're just finishing the deed. You're just sealing their work. You are completing what they started in building the tombs. It is actually not an honor 
It is an affirmation of their killing. When God sent the prophets, he sent them to confront the people with their sin and to point them to God. But instead, what the people have done is try to shut up the mouth of God, to silence his word. And Jesus prophesied that that is exactly what this generation will do. God will send prophets and apostles and they will persecute them and they will kill them, proving that they are exactly like their fathers. However much they would want to claim that the apple actually fell far from the tree this time, Jesus holds up the fruit and says, you're just like them. You are in that family tree. And it's not just the sins of your fathers, of your ancestors, they're your sins too. And so Jesus isn't telling them that they're going to be punished for the sins of another. Jesus is showing them you continue in their footsteps and so you will receive judgment for that. Instead of repenting, like their fathers, they are doubling down on their sin. They're planting their flag on it. They're trying to shut up God's word. God has spoken. God has appeared. He's there. He's here in the flesh, confronting them with their sin. And they choose their system of dead rules instead of him. They're not just trying to silence God in some abstract or metaphorical sense. Jesus is God. The incarnate word is there, and that is who they're opposing. In fact, verses 53, 53 and 54 tell us they are laying a trap for this word of God. Jesus is God. He is God, and they are trying to trap him. They are going, trying to get him to trip up in his speech so they might discredit him. They have chosen a religious system full of death and unliftable burdens over the living God. How awful. How absolutely horrifying. These aren't the atheists at the local university. They're not the hedonists saying, eat, drink, and be merry. They are the ones zealous for God. They are the ones seeking purity. They are the ones trying to lead the people to God. And they are the ones who, in drawing battle lines in the search for purity, find God on the other side of the lines they've drawn. They've devoted their lives to studying and applying God's law. And in all of that, they completely missed God Himself. We should tremble. We should tremble. In pursuit of greater faithfulness to God, the religious leaders completely lost the plot. They exchanged the living God who invites his people into a covenant relationship. They exchanged that for rules upon rules, weight upon weight. Rather than a beautiful relationship of dependence, they peddle a religion that trusts in human works, systems, works, deeds. And for what? What good does it do to them? The burden of those rules is too much even for them to carry. So it turns out they're hypocrites. They settle for appearances. They settle for double standards. They settle for a pitiful facade. They leave behind that which is essential, that which leads to joy and life in Christ. And instead, what they've chosen is a sad, sad show. Isn't the burden of this kind of hypocritical religion too much? Isn't it sweeter to look to our Savior instead? To simply melt before Jesus from the inside out because of the measure of his grace and mercy for us. 
What Jesus offers us is so much better than dead rules. And please don't hear me saying that it doesn't matter how we live. We couldn't possibly get that from this text. Jesus didn't say, clean the inside only and don't worry about the outside. But he did say, clean the inside first and the outside also will be clean. We've got to get the order right. We've got to be renewed on the inside. And naturally, necessarily, the outworking of that transformation results in a clean outside. God's people look a certain way. They look a holy way. We are called to be holy. But we get there not by doing it ourselves, but by the work of the Holy Spirit, by what Jesus has accomplished for his people on the cross. That is how our lives become holy, not through our efforts. The outworking of God's transforming work in us is what the outside is. You know what else? The outward evidence of what God has done in us, it doesn't look like bludgeoning our brothers and sisters with our fence poles. It doesn't look like loading up somebody else with burdens they can't lift, all in the name of proving devotion or sincerity. It's far more beautiful than that. It looks like actually knowing Jesus and delighting in him to such a degree that you just lose the palate for the sinful pleasures of this world. It looks like cherishing him so sweetly that you can enjoy his gifts without guilt and simply respond, thank you, and to worship. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is so much better than whatever else we might cling to for righteousness and salvation. What he offers is so beautiful and so sweet and so precious, and I pray that we would not trade it for a system that props us up and ultimately crushes us. Jesus is beautiful, and Jesus saves sinners, and he makes them holy and clean. But he does so by transforming our hearts, not by simply conforming our behavior. And so let's not, let's not look at the outside alone. Let's consider the inside. Let's consider what God has called us to, which is not mere morality, which is not mere outward appearance, but a life, an actual life, not death as the Pharisees had, an actual life with him. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we're grateful for your word, even as we recognize that there is much sin that we must repent of. Lord, where we have placed our trust in our accomplishments and our efforts, where we have created tests of faithfulness that go beyond your word, will you forgive us? Will you show us where good intentions may have gone astray, where, may we, where rules we've created may have become weapons to harm, burdens to crush, where we might have even unknowingly blocked the door for someone who needed to walk in. Forgive us, Lord. And instead of this, Lord, would you stir up in our hearts affections for you that, Lord, melt away the veneer of the outer, or where morality is not something that we cling to, but rather, Lord, the obvious outworking of being shaped by you, being transformed by you, being loved by you. Jesus, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see and receive your love for us, that we might be transformed, that we might be new creatures and walk in the newness of that life. 
that the evidence, the outward evidence of our faith would be plain for all to see that we are different, but in displaying that outward change, might it be clear that we are not peddling morality, but pointing people to a relationship with Jesus the Savior. There is no other like you. May our cherishing of you be so deep and thorough and sweet that we cannot hide it, that it transforms every aspect of our lives, and that it looks sweet and desirable to the outside world. Make us holy, Jesus. Amen.